Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Chapter 6, as we continue on, and last week we looked at one of the more um, I don't know if controversial is the correct word to use, but certainly the um, uh, contested portions of the Word of God in the, in the Christian world uh, in verses 4 down through verse 8. I am totally convinced that what that is is a warning to professing believers that if that if they would go back to Judaism or to Mosaism more correctly, that it is impossible then to bring them to salvation. They've had uh, a lot of light. Uh, And so as it starts out in verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, then if you go down to um, verse 6, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. So, as I said last week, if you want to believe that you can lose your salvation based on this portion of the Word of God, and a lot of people use it, believe in this, um, then you also have to believe that if you do lose your salvation, it's impossible to ever get it back. Well, it, it doesn't talk about a Christian, a child of God, losing their salvation. It's addressed to professing believers. And that's one of the key things in this book. Uh, It's written to Hebrews, Jewish people. Some of them are possessing, truly saved, but others are professors. Uh, They're not saved. And so there are these five warning passages in Hebrews warning those professing believers to come to true faith. Don't go back to the Mosaic system. Come to true faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews is addressing this entire group of Jewish professing and possessing believers. Uh, So on occasions, he addresses just directly the professing believers. And at other times, obviously, he's addressing the possessing believers, those that are are truly saved. Well, verses 9 and 10 and we're going to go down through verse 20, are a transition. 
from the previous passage that was addressing professing unbelievers. They're actually, probably it's a redundancy there. They're professing believers, but they're not truly saved. But they're now addressing in the, in the remainder of this chapter, possessing believers and reminding them that God will reward them for their faithful love and service. The writer of Hebrews then encourages these true believers to be steadfast in their service for God based on their assurance that they are eternally secure. So as, as confusing as some people might find the first part of this chapter, or specifically verses 4 through 8, the latter part of this chapter, as we'll see, is one of the strongest portions of the Word of God establishing our eternal security in the Lord that we cannot lose our salvation. When you look at passages of Scripture that talk about how secure we are, I think the end of Romans chapter 8 is certainly one of those that comes to the forefront. Uh, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Uh, and it goes on, neither principalities or powers or, or this and that and so on. Very, very strong portion of the Word of God. What we're going to look at tonight rivals that, in my opinion, in just how uh, strong it is that we are eternally secure. And I think it's perhaps even uh, expected, I don't know if logical is the right word, expected that this should be addressed uh, because of what has gone on prior to that. So he starts out in verse 9, and he says this, but, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So now he turns, and the contrast, but is a contrast word, but, beloved, and the only time in Hebrews this word is used is here. It's not, beloved is not used in any other verse in the entire book of Hebrews. Beloved is used some 60 times or so in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it's always, without exception, used of believers. It's never used of professing believers or unbelievers. It's always used of true believers. So he's using this contrast. You know, if you fall away, you can't be renewed. So make sure you come to, to faith is what he's saying. But now he's turning and he says, in contrast, but beloved believers, those who truly know the Lord, the possessing believers, we are persuaded better things of you. Now, better things, he's persuaded better things of, of these people in contrast to what? What just preceded this? the concern that there are some of those who are professing believers who could fall away. Now, again, I, I want you to understand, you don't fall away from true salvation. They would fall away from a profession of faith. So they didn't lose their salvation, but they were in danger of going back to Mosaism and temple worship and, and all of that that was... Think if you were Jewish back in that time period 
And for 1,500 years, you had a temple. I know there were interruptions at different times. But you had a temple, and you had sacrifices, and you had a priesthood, and you had holy days, Passover, and Yom Kippur, and others that were given by God. Um, and, and, and the draw, you know, to go back to that would be immense. It would be a terribly strong pull uh, to get you back there. Uh, so it's a warning to them, don't go back because Jesus, Messiah, he is much better than any of that. He is the promised one of Israel. So we are persuaded better things of you, meaning you're not like them. We are persuaded that there are better things of, of, of you. So here we have the contrast, the transition that's taking place. He was warning professing believers, unbelievers. And now he transitions the contrast. Now I'm talking to believers. There are things that accompany salvation. Now, though we thus speak, uh, he's speaking to them. Once we're saved, once you become a child of God, there are things that accompany salvation. Now, I have down here 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If one is truly saved, there's a, tr there's a changed life. You have passed from darkness to light. You have passed from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. You have passed from the family of Satan, spiritually speaking, to the family of God. And there is a change that takes place. You can't be any clearer, I don't think, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone be in Christ, he's new. He's a new creature. And when you're new, when you're born again, there are things that accompany that salvation that accompany what happened in your life. So he's speaking here in Hebrews to believers. You're not like those people. There are things that accompany salvation. Now, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3. I didn't put these verses down here, so you'll have to turn there in your Bible. But 1 John is written to distinguish between a professing and a possessing believer. So there's perhaps no better book to look at to try to determine what does accompany salvation. What are some of the things that we should look for? What are some of the things that the writer of Hebrew was saying were persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation? Well, the book of 1 John, or the epistle of 1 John, um, there, are, there are three general tests. And, and it's, not, it's not specific tests, just general tests that are given in this book, to test themes I have down here, to help one determine, am I, am, I, am I truly a child of God? Those test themes, and they're, and they're repeated over and over in the, in, in the five chapters of 1 John, are the moral test, the doctrine test, and the doctrine test primarily has to do with the doctrine of Christ, of Jesus. 
and the brotherly love test. You need to pass every test. You can't pass even two, you know, 67% grade in, in this regard, you flunk. You got to pass every test. Um, now, Precept Commentary said this on, on this passage, the writer of it. He says, well, I agree that John does not specifically delineate a list of test questions. So there, there's, it's not a question, it's not, a, it's, it's not, okay, do you believe in the deity of Christ? Do you believe in salvation by grace through faith alone? Do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? It's not that type of testing. I mean, that, that would be nice, I guess, if you had five questions or test questions that you could then, okay, let me see if I line up all here, and then, you know. Now, all of those are vitally important. Uh, those are very, very, if, if you misunderstand those doctrines, uh, you're not going to get saved. Uh, but that's not the type of tests that are being talked about here. So the writer here says, while I agree that John does not specifically delineate a list of, quote, test questions, close quote, to assess the authenticity of one's faith. There is no question that the apostle deals forthrightly, head-on, in other words, with the subject of professors versus possessors. Exactly what Hebrews is about, at least in one regard, of genuine life in Christ. Possessors versus professors. Um. A serious subject which has eternal consequences. Well, obviously, right? I mean, if you're a true possessor, the eternal consequence is good. You know, your destiny is heaven. Your home is uh, being built right now. Um, if you're a professor, your eternal consequence is terrible. It's the lake of fire. So obviously, this is a very important subject. So it's a serious subject. He goes on, to read 1 John with a mindset that this epistle has no relevance to authenticity of one's salvation is to pervert the message of the beloved apostle, and even worse, miss the greatly needed application to the modern church. Whereas one pastor has quipped, many have joined the church but have missed Jesus by a mile. And the reason this person wrote that, there are a few out there, it's a minority view, who would tell you that uh, the book of 1 John, Hebrews also, for example, uh, are all dressed to believers. There's no such thing as professors. Uh, if you make a profession of faith, it's real, period. It's all over with. Uh, and so they would say these are not warning in 1 John or Hebrews or whatever. It's a minority view. I won't mention any names who teach this um, other than Zane Hodges. But anyway, we want to go down that road. Most of you don't know Zane Hodges anyway, do you? Anybody know Zane Hodges? Okay. Zane Hodges was a former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, he is one that teaches this. Uh, and, I, and I just, he is not correct on it. So anyway. It's the only name I'll throw out at this point. Now, go with me to 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 10. 
You read something like verse 10. And I don't understand how anybody can say that this is not an authentication, this whole book, or at least this section in 1 John chapter 3, to determine if you're truly saved or not saved. Look what verse 10 says of 1 John chapter uh, 3. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Well, what does manifest mean? Yeah, to reveal, to be make known, manifest. So in this, two families, spiritually speaking, in this you can determine who is in the family of God and who is in the family of Satan. Again, verse 10, in this the children of God are revealed or manifest, made known, and the children of the devil are revealed, manifest, made known. He's talking about the previous nine verses and what it teaches in the previous nine verses. <clears throat> there are three things, a minimum of three things. Perhaps you could draw a fourth out of these verses. Characteristics of a child of God. Things that accompany salvation, in other words. In other words, if you're truly saved, what verses 1 through 9 speak of will communicate, if, you, if they are in your life, that you're a child of God. But if you're not exhibiting those things in your life, then you are a child of the devil, Satan. So look at verse 1. So these are things that accompany salvation. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And so John just starts out, and he's just blown away. I don't know if that's a word back in biblical times, but it's a good word, I guess, or two. He is blown away by the reality that he's a child of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father had bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. I remember when I was saved at the age of 27, and my life radically changed. All these things happened in my life. All those things happened in my life down to today. And, and one of the things that was just mind-boggling to me, a couple of things were, number one was, this was the Word of God, the Bible. You know, I, used to, I, I, did, I did a lot of reading, and I read a lot of books, but it struck me after I said, this is God's Word. That, that blew me away. The second thing, and these are not in any order per se, that blew me away is, I'm a child of God. God, the creator of the universe, the eternal God, is my father. I'm his child. And, and it, it just, I, I was blown away. I was just awestruck that that reality. Now, I was saved at the age of 27, and perhaps if you were saved at the age of five, it was, you know, ah, big deal, you know, and you went on. Uh, but this is what John is blown away. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us 
And we should all be blown away, by the way. Because when you look at the number of people in the world, 7 billion or so people in the world, a very, very small number are actually children of God. Um, and if you're one of those, that's mind-blowing. That's amazing. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, here's the first characteristic. Here's the first thing, at least as John lays it out here, that accompanies salvation. The world knows us not because it knew him not. The world won't understand you. They won't recognize you. Again, when, you, when you're saved later in life, usually there's that dichotomy that happens that a younger person, especially a, a young child, uh, may not go through as much, but certainly happens in their life. Um, I was saved at the age of 27. And people, my friends didn't understand what happened to me. They thought I got religious. They thought I got crazy. Yeah, I probably was always crazy, so I didn't get crazy. But uh, they didn't understand me. And, 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 and they, they stopped wanting to hang around with me. You know, that type of thing. Um, I wouldn't say I was persecuted. You know, the closest I came to persecution, I think I've shared this. Uh, prior to getting saved, I was, uh, I, I was thinking I wanted to become a professional bowler. I was a very good bowler. Um, I bowled in a lot of scratch leagues, if you know anything about bowling. And at the end of the scratch league season, you, know, you, have, you don't get trophies, you get money. And at the end of the season, uh, you bowl each other for, for all the money that you won over the three, four, five, six months, whatever the league season was. Well, I was the secretary, and I had gotten saved. And uh, so I had all this, I don't know, this was back in the 70s. And I had something, and there was, I don't remember, there were two-man teams, and I think there were maybe... 18 or 20 teams, 30 or 40 of us, I don't remember, but I had four or five, six thousand dollars of prize money, which was not insignificant back in 19, mid, middle 1970s or, or so. And I had to give, give it out. But I had just gotten saved a couple of months earlier. And uh, as I was about to hand it out, I said, before I hand it out, said, I, I need to share something with you. He said, I'm giving up bowling. That alone just shocked everybody. Said, I would bowl five nights a week. I wasn't married to my dear wife. She wouldn't have put up with it. But anyway, I was single. And, uh, and the reason I'm giving up bowling is because uh, I've come to know the Lord, and I want to serve him, and I want to spend all the time studying the Bible, yada, yada, yada. And I started to give the gospel. To them and I didn't know a lot but I knew I was saved and one of the guys in the back and he was big muscular and he had a beer can in his hand and he got up and he said I don't want to hear any of this so if I want to hear this I'll go to church on Sunday I don't want to hear a word and he said he came up with he said see this beer can full of beer he says if you don't hand out that money There goes a good Budweiser. Why did he do that? No, I'm just kidding. 
That could have been my neck, exactly. And he said, that's going to be you if you don't stop, if you don't shut up, and you don't start handing out that money. Well, I told him, I said, sit down. I literally told him, sit down, let me finish, and then I'll hand out. I made it short, but I, you know. Well, that's, yeah, was I persecuted? I don't know. He didn't hit me or anything. He, you know, if I would have gone on too long, I'm sure he would have. So, um, but that, the change in life. It's not that you have bowling. There's nothing sinful about bowling. Uh, but my whole desire, my whole life had changed and my, my desires had really changed. If you truly get saved, and you enjoy hanging around with your old unsaved crowd, and they don't know a difference in your life. Well, let me, let me rephrase it. If, if, if you say you're saved, not truly get saved. If you say you're saved, and then you continue hanging around with your old crowd and enjoy it, and they don't know any difference in your life, you flunk. You have flunked this test. Forget about the rest of them. It'll mark you off as an unbeliever. Because a changed life and the world not recognizing you, there is a change that takes place. And the first one in 1 John chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1, is the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. They didn't understand Jesus. They ultimately crucified him. Same type of, not that we're going to be crucified, but there are many martyrs in the Christian world. They will not understand us. Now, that should be one. There's actually four things here, and I really should have changed this. The second one is found in verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. We are children of God. We are not what we will be one day in the future, but we are, here's the use of the term, beloved. We are children of God, sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The second characteristic, and there should be four here again. So put one and then change these others, one, two, three, to two, three, four. The second characteristic is, in, is the knowledge in your heart Jesus is coming. I didn't believe that when I was unsaved. I never even gave it a thought. You know, I, I remember reading Hal Lindsey's book, he talked the late great planet Earth, he talked about the return of the Lord. Oh, that was interesting, uh, that type of thing. Um, but, you know, it was, it, it was a fleeting thought when I read the book. I never gave a second thought to it. Probably thought it was pretty crazy, that type of thing. If you are truly saved, you know in your heart. You don't have to be taught because the Spirit of God will instruct you. Jesus is coming again, and he's coming for you. If you find somebody out there who claims to be a Christian and says this second coming stuff is a bunch of hokey, that Jesus is not, is that a good rural North Carolina word, hokey? Um, pardon? Do the pokey with the hokey? Is that what you're saying? Okay. Okay, it's a bunch of uh, hogwash. That's a good North Carolina word. If, if anybody says they're a believer, 
and says that, hey, this Jesus returning, that's allegory. That's not true. You know, you will misunderstand what the scripture teaches. Mark it down. He's not a believer. That person is lost. Because we know, beloved, now are we the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know. We don't question. We don't think twice about it. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We know Jesus is coming. I know Jesus is coming. I don't know when he's coming, but I know he's coming. And that is ingrained in my soul as much as anything is ingrained in my soul. And from the day I accepted the Lord, I knew he was coming. I couldn't have told you much about what it was all about. I had no idea about the rapture of the church, whether it's pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib or whatever trip. I knew nothing about the millennial kingdom. I, I knew nothing about nothing or everything, basically. But I knew Jesus was coming back. Because it, it comes with salvation. And it's something the Spirit of God in you just, you, you know it. It, it it's becomes part of your being. So the second thing is you're looking for the return of Jesus Christ. You know it. Um, and, and that's got to be such a settled reality in your heart and your mind. You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're questioning that, if you're, well, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. You know, you know that's, uh, you know, I, I would examine myself to make sure I'm in the faith. It's a settled reality. Good. Yeah. <laughs> if I was at the computer and I had the TV on in the room and um, it just happened, you know, and what caught my eye or startled me was the host of the show, and I can't even think of his name, the old man that's just been there. Robertson? Pat Robertson? Yeah, Pat Robertson. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why you shouldn't watch that stuff. But anyway, you know. Um, yeah. And again, knowing Christ comes is coming for you. It doesn't mean you believe in a pre-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture. What it means is you know he's coming back. When I was saved, I was, I knew very little, I knew next to nothing about the Bible. I knew Jesus was the Savior. I knew he died for my sins and, and I knew the basics. I didn't know eschatology. I didn't know much at all. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. We didn't have the Bible growing up. Some people raised in the Christian home, raised in the church, <coughs> they have at least a, a head knowledge of, of doctrine. I had none of that. Um, but I knew Jesus was coming for me. Later on, as I started studying the Bible, I started sorting out the details and understanding what that meant and, and all of that type of stuff. That's the second thing. The third thing is in verse 3. 
and every man that has this hope in him. Now, what is the hope that's in every person that he's talking about? Jesus coming. And how many of children of God have this hope? All of them. So if you're a child of God, if you have this hope in you, and a hope is not a maybe, a hope is a sure thing, you know Jesus is coming. Every child of God has this. He purifies himself, even as he, Jesus, is pure. In other words, if, when we sin, you feel bad about it, and you will confess that sin and get right about that sin. Now, if you don't confess the sin, and we're going to look at that later on in Hebrews chapter 12, and, and I mentioned this down at the very bottom uh, sentence here uh, about discipline in a believer's life. Discipline is a very, very uh, prominent part of every believer's life, and Hebrews 12 goes into much detail on that. But there's got, there will be a regular accounting that you have, a believer has, with God of purifying yourself. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not salvation, that's fellowship. Because to get saved, you don't have to confess your sins. I was 27. Let's say I started sinning at the age of three. Let's say I started sinning at the age of 20. To try to remember all my sins from the age of 20 to the age of 27 and confess every one of those sins, I'd never be saved. So this is talking about fellowship. Purifying yourself. And when we sin against God, and we do sin against God, that's what 1 John 1 says, uh, if we don't say we have uh, any sins, then we're a liar. And the truth is not in us, but we will have be confessing those sins for fellowship, not for relationship, but for fellowship. So every believer will be purifying himself by agreeing with God when you do disobey him that that's wrong and confessing that, 1 John 1, 9. That's the third thing. The, then in verses 4 and 5, Whosoever commits sin transgress also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. So now he's just, he's just he's, he's establishing some facts for us. If you commit sin, you break the law. What is sin? Breaking the law. What law? God's law, the Mosaic law. Um, thou shalt not Commit adultery. Thou shalt honor thy mother and father and all of that type of thing. Sin is breaking God's law. And even the law of Christ in the New Testament, same type of thing. So he's just establishing what sin is. Everybody sins. Then verse 5, he makes this statement. And we know that he was manifest to take away our sins. Jesus. Jesus was revealed. Jesus came to take away our sins. In him, Jesus is no sin. He's the perfect Lamb of God. And he was manifest, revealed, came to take away our sin. How many people have sins? All. We all break the law of God. And that's why Jesus came. So he's just, in verses five and, um, 4 and 5, 
here he is just um, stating some basic realities, basic truths about sin and who came to take away sin. Now in verses 6 through 9, he gets into the third characteristic or the third thing that accompanies salvation. Verse 6. Whosoever abides in him sins not. Whosoever sins has not seen him, neither known him. Now, this verse and the few that follow have really messed up a lot of people. Wait a second. If I abide in him, I don't sin. How many times in your life have you abided in him and sinned? Yes. And then the flip side of that, if you sin, you've not seen him, neither known him. You know, there, there's, there's, a, uh, there's, there's a group in Pentecostalism that, because of this type of verse, will teach sinless perfection. And they'll teach, once you are saved, you will ultimately get to the point where you are perfect. Sinless perfection. You never, ever sin. And it is, it's such a lie. It's, it, you know, we had that when we were in California. It infiltrated the church that Cheryl and I were involved in. And um, Al Potter, some of you know, he was the pastor. He didn't believe that, obviously. Uh, but that teaching started to uh, just <coughs> come into the church through one individual who influenced other individuals who, who started to say, I'm perfect, I never sin. Well, one of the things that we did, we turned to uh, 1 John, I, I mentioned it just a moment ago, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And we said, you're deceived. You're a liar. He didn't, you know, well, I have sinless perfection and I've arrived at that point in my life and he was being tutored by somebody who taught the same type of thing. He was so confused um, and he ultimately left the church. Because he thought he was perfect, he couldn't hang around with imperfect people. Well, 1 John chapter 3 in, in the King James lends to that type of understanding, although that's not what it says, obviously. This says, if you abide in him, you don't sin. And if you sin, you've not, even, you've not seen him, neither have you known him. Now, the, the key is to understand that in the Greek, this is in, in, in the present tense, the ongoing tense. It's in the thought or the, or, or, or the understanding of, of, of a habitual practice. Not a one-time thing. A habitual practice. Uh, Whosoever abideth in him uh, will not regularly sin. Your conduct, your manner of life, your characteristic of life, if you abide in him, will be that of righteousness and not regularly sin sinning. But if you habitually sin, if your manner of life, if your characteristic of life, if your pattern of life is one of sin, 
continually, pattern, habitually, that tells us that you don't know him, you've never even seen him, that you're not saved. That's, so it's, 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 it's that continual tense, that present tense, uh, a habitual type of thing. Then in verse 7, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So I don't want you to be deceived, little children. Uh, you have to practice righteousness. And the, and the mark of a true believer will be uh, habitual righteousness. Not perfection. Nobody's perfect. Habitual righteousness. Now, there is that exception of a child of God who gets so deep into sin that that looks like he, it's his pattern of life, but he is actually a child of God. That individual, we'll look at that when we get into chapter 12, is dealt with by God through discipline, which marks him off as a believer as well. But we're just dealing with this right now. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. You have to practice righteousness. Verse 8, he that commits sin is of the devil. Again, it's in the, in the present continual tense. If you continually, habitually, as a pattern of life, practice sin over and over and over again, that's your pattern of life, you're, you're of the devil because you're not saved. For the devil sins from the beginning. And for this purpose, the middle part of verse 8, the Son of God was manifest, revealed, that he might destroy the works of the devil, that, he would, that, that Jesus would destroy the works of the devil. What is that work? A habitual pattern of life of sinful practice. Jesus came to break that work of the devil in your life by making you a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And there are things that accompany salvation. Then it goes on in verse 9. Whosoever is born of God does not habitually practice sin. That's the key understanding. If you're born of God, you will not habitually practice sin as a pattern of your life. Continue in a sinful lifestyle. Whosoever is born of God did not habitually practice sin. Why? For his seed remains in him. God's seed. What is that seed that remains in you that is being the Holy Spirit? And the reason you cannot live a habitually sinful life is because the Spirit of God is in you. And he will convict you of that sin and ultimately, in discipline process, bring you home to God, kill you if, he, if needs to be. Then it goes on, uh, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. He cannot habitually practice sin. It's not the pattern of your life because you're born of God. Verse 10, in this, these four previous things, In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Now, Kenneth Wiest puts it this way. Let me, let me 
read what he comments on verses 6 through 9. The words abides and sins are used here to designate a certain class of individual. Character is shown by one's habitual actions, not the extraordinary ones, not the exceptions. The tense of the verbs is present. The kind of action continuous, habitual. Thus, everyone who habitually is abiding in him is a saved person. And everyone who habitually is sinning, an unsaved person. A Christian, as a habit of life, is abiding in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Sin may at times enter his life. But sin is the exception, not the rule. The unsaved person, as a habit of life, sins continually. Sins is present tense. Continuous action being indicated. The person who is, a, uh, the person who is abiding in Christ is not habitually sinning. The child of God, as a habit of life, does righteousness. And sin is not a habit with him. John is not teaching sinless perfection here. Vincent says John does not teach that believers do not sin, but is speaking of a character, a habit. Throughout the epistle, he deals with the ideal reality of life in God, in which the love of God and sin exclude each other as light and darkness. He does not deny that a Christian sins at times. Indeed, he admits the possibility of sin in the Christian life in 1 John 1, 9. Note. That means go back to his note, which I didn't put down here, by the way. And forbids sin in 1 John 2, 1. The note. What John denies here is that a Christian sins habitually. He denies that the life of a Christian is wholly turns towards sin, as is that of the unsaved person. That's the difference. Four things that accompany salvation that we find in this portion of the Word of God. The world doesn't understand us. We know that Jesus is coming back for us. We regularly purify ourselves when we do sin and we do not habitually practice sin, we will habitually live a righteous life. And if you were saved later on in life, and you came out of a world of, of, of sinfulness and darkness and secularism and all of that, uh, if you're truly born again, you, you know the difference. You, you know what takes place in your life. Um, years ago, I worked with a man and um, some of you, I think, have heard this illustration, but he was a preacher and evangelist. And he went to a, a church to preach, don't remember where it was. And <clears throat> they had meetings for the whole week. And the pastor said, I want you to go out and visit a man with me. Uh, he needs the Lord and so on. So uh, this man went out with the pastor, visited with this man, and, and they led him to the Lord. And he came out for the rest of the meetings that, that week and listened and was just excited about what was taking place. That evangelist left, went home, and two years, three years later, whatever the case was, would be, he was invited back to the same church. 
And he went back, and uh, during the week he said, you know, I haven't seen Joe here this week. What's, what's up with Joe? And the pastor said, we haven't seen him in months. Don't know. And so he said, well, let's go visit him and see what's up. So they went to visit Joe. I don't know if that was his name. And knocked on the door. When Joe opened the door uh, and saw them there, he started crying. And they said, what's, what's the problem? He said, well, come in. He said, I, he said, I, I, I'm just ter- I feel terrible. And he came in and said, well, what's up? He says, why are you crying? What, what are you so upset about? He said, brother, he said, he said, I know I'm not saved. He said, I am not a child of God. And I'm miserable about it. And so this eventually, well, what do you mean? Well, why do you think you're not a child of God? I mean, two years ago, you know, you accepted the Lord and you came out, you're excited and so on. He said, well, he said, I'm a carpenter. And I was at work a couple of months ago, and I was, uh, uh, I was nailing uh, something onto the building or whatever, and I swung that hammer, and I, and I glanced off the nail, and it hit my thumb. And he said, I let out a string of expletives that you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Taking the le- no, Lord's name in vain. I should have used Bob's name. taking the Lord's name in vain. And he said, I know I can't be saved. And so what this evangelist said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, prior to getting saved, did you ever hit the nail or glanced off that nail, your hammer, and it hit your thumb? He said, yeah. So how'd you respond? He said, I cursed, took the Lord's name in vain. I said, well, what happened after that? Eh, nothing. I just went on working. I just saw a thumb. He says, notice the difference. This time, what you did was no different than what you did prior to accepting the Lord. But now, you feel totally guilty about it. And just under all kinds of conviction. That's, that's an indication that you're a child of God. You're convicted of that sin. And all you need to do is confess that sin, 1 John 1, 9, and get right with God and tell him, you're, you, you, forgive me, I sinned against you and that's wrong, and that, and, and that fellowship will be... He prayed, got right with God, showed up for the rest of the meetings that week. Uh, the whole point of that is what he did prior to salvation had the same manifestation in his response that what he did after salvation But the difference was, prior to being saved, it didn't bother him, except for a sore thumb. After salvation, he was miserable about what he did. Still had the sore thumb, that wasn't cleared up. But he was miserable, because he had the Spirit of God in him. That's the difference. So there are things that accompany salvation. Now, go back to... so. Now, discipline is part of the the believer's life. So, we're persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation. Turn your uh, uh, page over. Verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work in labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Two things here. 
well, a number of things here. God will not forget what you've done for him. He is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name. When we do something in Christian service, what should be the reason we're doing it? So you can get a medal at the church when they hand out medals, if they hand out medals, whatever they do. That you can get a plaque on the wall that says um, Bob was here, or you know, or whatever. You know, what is the motive? What should be the motivation for our service? Our love of God, our love of God. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. The love here is toward His name, because of what Jesus has done for you. It should motivate each one of us. To serve him. Even when it gets difficult. And, and the difficult part is coming. And, and why you can get through it in the difficult part. But we should. You were a sinner. You were lost. You were going to hell. You had no hope. And Jesus died for your sins. And saved you when you called on him. And delivered you from the penalty of your sin. Delivered you from the kingdom of darkness. Into the, his kingdom of light and righteousness. You should be. Beloved. What manner of love. And that should be how we express our love. To him by what we do. But we do things because of what he did for us. That is the bottom line. That's foundational. Now, there, there are other encouragements on why we do stuff. Rewards. God offers rewards for service. It's not sinful. It's not worldly to want to get a reward, a crown. If God offers it, it's certainly not wrong to want it. But the bottom line motivating factor should be what God has done for us in Christ to motivate us to serve him he will not forget that work and labor of love <clears throat> and that you have showed toward his name in how? That you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Our, pri our primary focus of a believer is to minister one to another. Now, it doesn't mean we don't do good to unsaved people. Galatians 6 says, uh, <clears throat> you know, do good unto all people, but especially what? The household of faith. That's priority. Ministering one to another. And God will not forget that. And why do we minister one to another? Because of what Jesus did for us. And he will not forget that. And he will reward us for what we do there. So we should keep on doing, keep on serving, ministering to saints, to one another, because of what Jesus did for us. Then verses 11 and 12. And we desire that any, every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. So now the writer of Hebrews says, we desire that every one of you. I think here he embraces not just the believers who he's addressing, but even the professing ones. We want you to be saved as well and partake in all this blessing that God has for you. So we want every one of you, we desire that every one of you <clears throat> do show the same diligence 
how would you define diligence? If you're diligent at something, you do what? what? Persistence? I, don't, I wouldn't even say it's doing it well. It's, it's just keeping at it. You know, it's being the energizer bunny. Uh, you know, it's being persistent, keeping on. Hopefully we do it well. I'm not saying we don't do it well. Uh, but persistence and doing it well uh, are, are not the same thing. Um, diligence is persistence. Diligence is keeping at it. Sometimes we stumble. S sometimes we don't follow through like we should. We're sinners. We're, 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 we're not perfect. But we need to work at the Christian life. We need to continue. We need to be diligent in following through. So I want every one of you to be diligent to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Now, I think this is one of the keys to being diligent. The full assurance of hope unto the end. <clears throat> what is the hope do you think he's talking about here? Resurrection would be part of it, certainly. Coming of the Lord. And, the, and, and, and that's the hope. Resurrection, the coming of the Lord, uh, and that you're part of it. But what's the two words before, um, <clears throat> or before of hope? Full assurance. Those who teach that you can lose your salvation will never have full assurance. And the Bible doesn't teach that by the way. He wants us to have full assurance. If you can't have full assurance that you're a child of God and you will be in heaven one day, you're never ever going to be able to live the Christian life victoriously. You're never going to be able to continually serve God victoriously. You're not going to be able to be diligent in that life because you're going to be defeated right away. So he wants you to have the full assurance. He could have said, I want you to have the assurance. Don't you want to be assured? But he said, I want you to have the full. I want it running over. I want you to be so full of the knowledge that you're going to heaven one day, that you're a child of God, I want it to be running over. I want you to have the full assurance of that. Then you can be diligent. Then you can serve me because then you have the freedom. You're not always looking over your shoulder. You know, I, at what point does somebody lose their salvation? Now, if you believe you can lose your salvation, at what point do you lose your salvation? Oh, I didn't read my Bible today. Have you lost your salvation? I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't pray for five minutes today. Did you lose your salvation? No, I had a bad thought. Did you lose your salvation? You know, if you're always looking over your shoulder and what you had to do or what you might have done to lose your salvation, you don't have assurance. You don't have the hope. He wants us to have full assurance of salvation. So, he then challenges us, verse 12. And by the way, the end of verse, the same diligence, the full assurance of hope, unto the end. It's the end of your life. Now, your, your life might end one of two ways. The rapture or death. 
doesn't matter. I want you to be fully assured in your heart that you are his for your life. I don't want you to doubt it. I don't want you to question it. I don't want you to be looking over your shoulder. I want you to have the full assurance of hope that comes with being a child of God. And then in verse 12, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I don't want you to be slothful. I don't want you to be, um, well, Webster's Dictionary defines sloth as spiritual apathy and inactivity. I don't want you to not be serving the Lord. I don't want you to be slothful, <coughs> but I want you to be a follower of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So what he's doing, he's encouraging believers remain steadfast in the full assurance and understanding that we are eternally secure in our salvation. And it's logical, by the way, after telling merely professors in Christ of their certain doom, if they don't truly accept the Lord, uh, he shows possessing believers, those truly saved, the security and certain glory that belong to them. Our full assurance of hope should lead to a disciplined lifestyle. Now, when he says, back in verse 12, be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Kind of like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be ye followers of me, even as I also am Christ. There's nothing wrong with, 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 with imitating the life of a leader as long as that leader is imitating Christ. Now, ultimately, we follow Christ. So Paul said, I don't want you following me just to follow me. I'm not looking for a band. I'm not looking for a, uh, for a um, following. He says, but as long as I follow Christ, if you follow me and do what I'm doing, as long as I'm following Christ, go for it. That's fine. So it's, it's not wrong to look at a leader and, and say, you know, boy, look how he handled that and, and learn from him or, or that type of thing. But ultimately, it gets back to Jesus. Um, so he's encouraging them. But it, you get to the full assurance of hope. The rest of this chapter, 13 through 20, is perhaps the strongest argument in the entire Word of God, perhaps with the exception of Romans 8, of our eternal security in Jesus. And if this doesn't give you full assurance, I don't know what will. There are three ways that the writer of Hebrews establishes our, our security in Jesus, in God, that we can have the full assurance that he wants. Number one, is the example of God's promise to Abraham, verses 13 through 15. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now the promise to Abraham, verse 13, is the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. What God would ultimately do, though, 
in Genesis 22, and we're not going to look at these verses, is that that promise would be confirmed by an oath. In other words, when God made that promise to Abraham, that alone should have been sufficient. God cannot lie. It was an unconditional promise. I promise you, I will do these things for you, Abraham. But God went a step beyond that. And in Genesis chapter 22, he swore, he gave an oath that he would bring to pass, and he quotes part of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And so not only by a promise, but by an oath. And God didn't swear by the President of the United States or the Supreme Court. I know they weren't around at the time. No, he didn't swear by any man that this is going to come to pass. He swore or gave an oath based on himself. The God who cannot lie, the God who will never change when it comes to this, the God who is perfect. And so saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will uh, multiply thee. So he made a promise and he swore or gave an oath. Those two things, that alone, one of them should be enough, right? And ultimately, after he, Abraham, patiently endured, he got what he was promised. Why should we have full assurance? Because that same God who promised Abraham and gave an oath around the Abrahamic covenant, part of that is salvation. And when we enter into in essence, then, God has made a promise to, oath, to us and given an oath or swore that he will bring to pass what he has promised for us. Secondly, the immutability of God's word. Look at verse 16. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Two nations are at war. One nation ultimately gets the upper hand, defeats the other nation. And the leaders of those nations, think of World War II. Go back to the Civil War after the South had lost. Ultimately, one leader is representing one nation, the other leader representing the other nation. And it's based on that leader's word that everything is resolved. And I swear by my name, as the head of this country, that our strife is done. That's what men do. And when that takes place, at least for a time period, the strife is over. War is over. Well, look at verse 17. Wherein God, <clears throat> willing more abundantly... How... How much does God want you to understand this? Can we quantify that? I'm not sure we can. God wants us not only to abundantly understand this. He wants us to more abundantly. God, we're, we're in God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the heirs of promise 
are those who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation, those who are a child of God. And God wanting to show on to the ears of promise the immutability of his counsel. What is immutable? Unchangeable. Unchangeable. Can't be changed. God wanting to show on to believers the immutability of his word, of his counsel, of what he has said. And then confirmed it by an oath. God can't lie. God is true. You can believe his word. Verse 18, that by two immutable things. Now, what are the two immutable things? His word and his oath. Neither of those can change. By two immutable things. And then he adds this, just to make sure you're getting it. He wants you more abundantly to understand this. In which it was impossible for God to lie. Underline this in your heart. There are two immutable things, his word and his oath, in which it was impossible for God to lie. That we, believer, might have a strong consolation, that's a strong hope, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now, the, the imagery that he is using here, fled for refuge. <clears throat> in, the, um, in the Old Testament, there were six cities of refuge spread throughout the land of Israel. If you would commit what we would call today manslaughter, or any kind of uh, taking of a life, murder, whatever, if you would do all you could to get to one of the cities of refuge, and they were spread throughout the land. That's why there were six all over the land of Israel. Once you got to that city of refuge, you were protected there, and nobody could touch you until you had a fair trial. See, if you would kill somebody by mistake, innocently, maybe a child, uh, the emotions of the family, if they had the opportunity, they might take your life, not even thinking about it. No fair trial. Look what happened in Chicago this week. Well, that black man was, was, was shot and killed by a police officer. And immediately there was riots in Chicago because the police shot and killed a black man. Well, thankfully there was a recording of this entire thing. This black man had a gun. And he was going for the gun. And the police officer who shot him was fully within his rights to protect himself and everybody else around him. But the emotions of the moment, the crowd wanted to lynch the police officers, the riots that pursued. So the city of refuge was a place of safety that you were secure. He's using this for believers. If we who have a strong hope, we who have fled for refuge, Jesus is our city of refuge, if you will. To lay hold upon the hope set before us. What's the hope set before us? He talked about that earlier. Resurrection, heaven, the return of the Lord. So the second promise, the second thing that he deals with is the immutability of God's word and his oath 
in which it is impossible for God to lie that we would have that full assurance of hope. Then the third one is the entrance of our forerunner into heaven. Verse 19 and verse 20. Which hope we have. The hope ultimately is the return of Jesus Christ. Our going to be with him. Our resurrection, being in heaven. The return of Jesus Christ. And how many people have that hope in them? First John 3. Every believer. <clears throat> Which hope we believers have as an anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast. And which entered into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have an anchor of the soul. Here's the picture. Biblical times. The harbor. If you're out in the Mediterranean and a storm comes up, these are very small ships. They're not like the big ships we have today. They are extremely small, and you are in great danger of being shipwrecked. You want to get into the safety of the harbor. What they would do, because the winds would whip back and forth, and you'd, you wanted to be very careful going through that slip, that channel that takes you into the safety of the harbor, because those winds could just whip you back and forth and, and shipwreck you on the rocks on the side. So what they would do is they would take a rowboat and they would put eight or 10 or 12 of the strongest men that they had and they would put the anchor of that ship in that rowboat and they would send the rowboat in through that channel into the harbor. And when they ultimately made it, what they would do is they would anchor, put that anchor steadfast among the rocks or something that is sure and steadfast and can't be moved. And then what they would do is they would just pull themselves in through the anchor. In essence, the anchor was bringing them in. And they might be whipped back and forth a little bit, but they could always pull tighter in the anchor and bring them back towards the center. And ultimately, they would come safely into the harbor. Jesus is the anchor of our soul. Here's the picture. Jesus, the end of verse 19 which enters into that within the veil, the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made in high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus entered into heaven. When he left earth, he went into heaven. That's the harbor, people. I can't wait to get there. You know, the winds of life batter us back and forth. But Jesus has already entered into heaven, and he's the anchor of our soul. It's kind of like there's this invisible rope attached to him that's attached to you. And as we go through life, we're going to be battered back and forth by life, but he's going to pull us home, and we're not going to be shipwrecked because he's the anchor of our soul. And we cannot be shipwrecked eternally because of what he is doing for us. God's promise, the immutability of God's worth, a word and, and his oath. He's the anchor of our soul. He wants us to have full assurance 
that we are eternally secure. He couldn't have said it in a much greater way. And then at the end of verse 20, talking about Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Remember back in chapter 5? I want to talk to you about Melchizedek. I, I want to tell you about Melchizedek. But there's some of you here that can't take it because you're not saved. So I've got to deal with you first. But now I'm talking to believers. Now we're going to talk about Melchizedek. And that's chapter 7. And we'll get into chapter 7, Lord willing, next week as we learn about Melchizedek. And who is he? <laughs> we'll find out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and uh, the word of God. And Lord, I pray that every single one of us here who is a believer, I hope everyone is, would just have the full assurance in our heart, in our mind, in our being of the hope that you're coming for us one day, that there is a home in heaven for us, that we are secure in you, not in us, but in you. Lord, help us to rest in that. And then we can diligently serve you to the glory of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Bless our fellowship. Bless the food. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.